From my home studio, welcome to Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations. At my interview, um, one of my former teachers, Rabbi Ivan Kane, asked me, most of our students don't necessarily think of themselves as reconstructionists. I'm wondering how you feel. I said, Rabbi Kane, whatever I do is reconstructed. <laughs> I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and I'm basically here to tell you I'm turning the mic over today to Rabbi Deborah Waxman, who is the president and CEO of Reconstructing Judaism. Rabbi Waxman is also the host of the podcast Hashi Venu, Jewish Teachings on Resilience. And if you haven't listened yet, you can find it anywhere podcasts are downloaded. And it's um, it's a different show, really interesting um, this season, Rabbi Waxman is co-hosting with Rabbi Sandra Lawson, uh, Reconstructing Judaism's Director of Racial Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and they're really going into racial justice issues and, and how it relates to resilience and Judaism. Um, a lot of very frank and off-the-cuff conversations. Check it out. Hashivenu, Jewish Teachings on Resilience. So today, Rabbi Waxman, or Deborah, as everybody refers to her around the uh, around the office or in Zoom meetings, is interviewing her teacher, mentor, and friend, basically of thirty years, Rabbi Jacob Staub, who both of them are PhDs, and and Jacob is currently the executive producer of this show. So another person I report to, and director of Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations. The, the whole project from which this show springs. And earlier this year, um, at, actually at the end of the last academic year, at the, uh, at the age of 70, Jacob retired from teaching at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, where he'd been on the faculty since 1983 and first enrolled as a student in 1972, which was before I was born. So... Um, Rest assured, he's still very much involved in the in the Evolve project and getting this show out there to you. So on this one, well, I'm talking a lot now, but I just get to, to sit back and listen to two people I admire and always learn from discuss reconstructing Judaism as well as Jacob's career and contributions up to this point. In fact, I think by by listening to and learning about Jacob's life, career, intellectual history, we learn a lot about the development of Reconstructionist Judaism over the past half century. So buckle, buckle up for this ride. So just know on the Evolve site, evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org, you can find a number of essays that were written in tribute to Jacob, including pieces by, by Deborah Waxman, Elsie Stern, who is the immediate past uh, vice president for academic affairs, Rabbi David Toich, uh, former president of the college, it's a long URL, so we'll put the link in the show notes, and you can just go to the evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org and search Jacob Staub, and you should find the whole the whole collection. Reading these pieces will give you a deeper sense of the impact Jacob's had on the movement and the broader Jewish world. So with that said, I am going to sign off now and turn the show over to Rabbi Deborah Waxman. Here we go. 
Hi, I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman, the president of Reconstructing Judaism, and I am so honored to sit in as the guest host of this podcast for Evolve Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations. Let me explain to you why this comes to be. This past year, Rabbi Dr. Jacob Staub stepped down from the faculty of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College after decades of service, and we looked for many ways to honor him. Uh, and, and, and there are many ways, including um, an honorary degree that he will receive at graduation this coming year, and a uh, series of beautiful tribute essays that are on the Evolve website. And we wanted to use this vehicle as well. We wanted to take some time on the Evolve podcast uh, to hear about Jacob's life and about Jacob's contributions. So as one of the hosts and one of the producers of, of this podcast, he couldn't really do it himself. So I get the, the great delight of stepping in as his uh, interviewer and, and conversation partner. Jacob, I am so happy to be with you today. Thank you for that introduction. And I'm really happy to be here talking with you. Yes, it is a recorded version of many, 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 many conversations we have had over, it's been almost three decades. Um, I'll share with everyone uh, who's listening that when I enrolled at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College as a student in 1993, um, Jacob was the dean, and then later it was elevated to the vice president for academic affairs. I don't think his work changed. I think the title just more accurately reflected the work that he had done. And he was the co-author of the book that I and so many others read to introduce me to Reconstructionism. It's called Exploring Judaism, a Reconstructionist Approach. So, um, so we, we've had um, the opportunity to be in, in relationship with each other in many ways as, as, a, a, as my, you were my teacher and my dean and my coworker and my boss. And, and now, you know, I'm in this role. So um, there's, I know that, that, that this will be such a rich conversation for everyone. And I thought we'd start at the beginning. Like, will you talk a little bit about how you found your way into Reconstructionist Judaism? Yes. Um, well, I was raised in an Orthodox family. I went to an Orthodox day school, yeshiva. And um, I had a 12-year-old um, crisis of faith right before my bar mitzvah, to which I, uh, I'm grateful for Max Diamant's book, Jews, God, and History, which somehow was on a shelf of my father's. And I don't think I read past the first page, but I did open it and read the first page. And in it, on the first page, Daimant described Abraham's Lech Lecha, go forth to a land that I will show you, epiphany in naturalistic historical context. And I said, oh, and my entire framework kind of collapsed in an instant and I could go into, well. So, so, so from supernatural revelation to a more, a more, an approach informed by history, informed by rationalism. Well, no, at 12, not. No. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I made the leap that you were yeah. Yeah, just the collapse. I went into, um, uh, a number of, you know, I wasn't Jewish anymore. I gave it all up. Mm. I wouldn't sing Shalom Aleichem at my parents' table. I didn't go into a synagogue for four years. Mm. And um, 
And uh, without doing too much, too many stages on the journey, I realized at a certain point, end of high school, that I couldn't give up Judaism altogether, but I didn't know how to approach it. And when I discovered Kaplan, Rabbi Mordechai Kaplan, I was really excited and ecstatic because he had been raised in an Orthodox home and he had made meaning out of all of this stuff without compromising his intellect or his beliefs or his, his worldview. And How did you find where, where did you, where, where, where was your first, first exposure? <laughs> so I was, I uh, had a scholarship to the Breadloaf Writers Conference mm. in Middlebury, Vermont during college. And another kid who had a scholarship, I remember his name, Eric Paul Tesler. Uh, I said, what are you going to do? You're going to go to graduate school in English like I was planning to? And he said, no, I'm going to go to the Reconstructionist Seminary in Philadelphia. And I'd never heard of Reconstructionism at that point. And I was impressed. He was a student from Antioch. He was cool. Um, and so it, it stayed in my mind. And then, and here's a, a real moment, when I was taking a course in Chaucer following a fall, and um, Chaucer comes in like a tikkun with modern English on one side and medieval English on the other side, so you can learn to read the original. And there was a certain point at which in the middle of the semester, I learned to not need the English trans, the modern English translation anymore. And I started reading fluently in Chaucerian English. And it hit me really clearly that I didn't, I would always be a tourist in Chaucerian England, right, that I'd yeah. rather do this in Hebrew. So I wrote, I, was, I had learned to drink beer um, at, at the writer's conference. And I wrote a uh, a beer-stained, five-hole, loose-leaf um, letter. Dear sir, I am confused about my Jewish identity. What is Reconstructionism? Sincerely yours, Jack Staub. And put it in an envelope that said, Reconstructing, Reconstructionist, Reconstructionist Seminary, I guess. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, no address, no zip code. And, and it got it delivered? Up. No way. And... I got a flood. Uh, I got multiple <laughs> page, single space letters from Ira Eisenstein and Rabbi Arthur Gilbert and Rabbi Red Kazin. So there's, there's uh, just for our listeners, the founding president, the founding dean, the director of admissions, I guess, you know, so. And the dean of students, yeah. right? And, um, you know, I don't know what, I didn't say I had a, a yeshiva education or I knew anything about Judaism. I was like, they knew nothing about me. And they really wrote stuff up. And, but they also sent me a subscription to the Reconstructionist and a catalog to the Reconstructionist Press. And I, you know, as I'm a book, hoarding, a book hoarder, I, even then I bought all of Kaplan's works and I read them in a very cold Buffalo winter. Um, I don't know how much I absorbed, but I just kept reading. Uh, so that's how I got again for our listeners. Like the, the Reconstructionist was the journal that like helped to bring Kaplan's theoretical ideas to life, like both like explicated how to do it and reported on and furthered some of the some of his thinking. And it was it was probably not bi-weekly any longer by the time you got it, but probably like monthly. It was monthly, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. 
so uh, when I went home, I, I remember going to a Shavuot service um, in June at the Society for the Advancement of Judaism. The first Reconstructionist congregation. Uh, and I was very disappointed because, <laughs> because the, um, the service itself was not much, very much, unlike, it was like a young Israel service that mm. I grew up with. I said, so I was really uncomfortable, like, as I had always been. And uh, then Rabbi Alan Miller, then the rabbi spoke, and he, um, and, and after him, as was traditional in those days, Rabbi Kaplan responded to Rabbi Miller, speaking much longer than Rabbi Miller had spoken. But I was looking around, and they were saying all of these things that would have been heretical in my uh, from where I came from, and everybody was just like not at all surprised. And like, oh, you can actually sing. El Adon, I'll call Hama Asim, you know, one of the, the uh, songs of the Shach morning service for Shabbat, and believe what they're saying. It is a way to put this together. And pretty much I was convinced, and I, uh, I guess that would have been the end of my junior year, and I applied in my senior year to RRC. What I wanted was to relearn everything, right? Just learn everything from a different perspective so that I could own it and I could live it. Uh, and as we used to say back then, we, I wouldn't have to leave my mind at the synagogue door. And just to set the, uh, the stage a little bit for our listeners, the reconstruction, you, when did you start in 72? 72. So RRC was, the Reconstruction Rabbinical College was four years old in 1972. It was a, a, a It was bold, three years when I applied. <laughs> three years when you applied. It was a bold experiment with no guarantee of success, I think. Is, is that safe to say? And, and, and still being established in, in really critical ways, right? Completely, completely. I do not understand how, well, my parents didn't have a lot of say over what I was doing in those days, but they didn't, they didn't know. It, it was like applying to a school that wasn't accredited and had no endowment and didn't even have the five years of its five-year program established yet right, right. Um, was, uh, yeah, it was... I don't know how much I was aware of that. I, right. What I was aware of is I applied to Hebrew Union College, the Reform Ceremony Seminary in New York, as a safe school. Which was about 100 years old at that time, yeah. almost, almost it was, precisely. It was very clear that I couldn't go there. Right, right. And I, uh, it just wasn't culturally and uh, tonally where I wanted to be. And I couldn't go to uh, Jewish Theological Seminary. I wrote for an application there, and they sent me back a questionnaire about my Shabbat and Kashrut observance. And I said, I can't go there because I'm not going to a place that's gonna look over my shoulder about ritual observance. Um, and what RRC, the Reconstruction Rabbinical College, offered was a, a community in which you shuckled and davened with, with Kavanah, with intention, um, in the middle of, you know, taking this historical, uh, contextual, naturalistic view of, of Judaism. And that's what I wanted. I, I wanted both of those. Yeah. And that's what it gave me. 
Now, our, our tagline relatively recently is deeply rooted, boldly relevant. And I think we came to that language because I think that's really expressive of who we are. It feels to me like in shorthand, that's what you're, that's what you wanted and that's what you right. it's, found it's, and that's what you helped to build also. Right. 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 Um, so that's how I came uh, to uh, the Reconstruction of Rabbinical College. I did not think I was going to be in a congregation or I didn't want, I didn't go because I wanted to be a rabbi. I went because I wanted to relearn everything. And I first started as a professor after graduation. Well, and, and also like when RSC was founded, there was a, an aspiration that our students would get secular yeah. degrees I mean, right. the medieval era, it's interesting that you talked about Chaucer because you stayed in that, that area, that I era. And I can't explain why I'm a medievalist, but I am somewhere in my soul a medievalist. And so when I was in my biblical year, the first year of RRC, I wanted to be a biblical scholar. And the second year, I wanted to be a midrash scholar. And the third year, I wanted to be a, a, a medieval philosophy scholar. And then I stayed there. That's I did. I had the same thing, and I, I my, my, I'm a modernist. Modern. <laughs> so, but I had the same experience. Right, but one of the wonderful things about what I was studying for my PhD at Temple University Department of Religion um, was I felt that I found in the Rambam in Maimonides and in the Ralbag Gersonides, the person about whom I wrote my dissertation. Um, spiritual launchman mm -hmm. in the uh, 12th, 13th, 14th century. They were questioning, they were completely reinterpreting what a Torah was, what revelation was, what prophecy was, what miracles were. They did not believe that God intervened supernaturally in the world. And that was a relief. To yeah. know that. <laughs> we it was ancient. This was, this was an ancient yeah. impulse, not just, a, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I want to pause a second, though, just for partly for our listeners, but also because I, I guess we've talked about this, Jacob, but um, it's like worth reflecting on, you know, if Kaplan put forward the idea, the conceptualization of Judaism as the evolving religious civilization, it's one of the reasons I ended up at RRC also is because the, the, the rabbinic curriculum is built on that insight and that opportunity to start at the beginning to look like to to go both deep and wide and look at the breadth of Jewish civilization and how it unfolds and how it's in conversation with each other to this day it's 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 completely what drew me in and it worked it was it, it didn't it lived up to its promise and it 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 um it both shaped me and and fed me and you know i think that you 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 got that at a very early stage, and then you helped to really build that out, both through your writing and like you, you emerged relatively quickly as a major expositor of Reconstructionist Judaism, and then also in the in the in the reinforcement of that, in the deepening of that in the rabbinical curriculum. So, you want to talk a little bit about? Yeah, I, I, I before I get to that, I, I want to reflect on your reflection. Um, <laughs> It seems to me that that works, the, the evolving religious civilization continues to work in ever new ways. Like that means that we don't have to focus only on Ashkenazic culture. 
or on um, the, the color of Jews' skin because, because there were many cultures in Jewish civilization and many ethnic groups. And when we study things that way, we, we really capture some of the breadth and variety of what goes into being Jewish. And that prepares us to face the 21st century and in all of the intersectionality uh, that we have, to, you know, the multiple identities we, that we, we have to face in terms of who is a Jew today. I think that's right. I think we are ideologically well prepared, even as we fall into our own biases and, and act with blinders. It, we have the, it's, it is a, yet another tool and yet another prompt to push us to do exactly, you know, what you just, what you just described. Right. So to your uh, other question, I came back to the faculty five or six years after I was ordained in 1983. And I'll never forget at my interview for that position, um, one of my former teachers, Rabbi Ivan Kane, asked me, you know, we have some, most of our students don't necessarily think of themselves as reconstructionists. I'm wondering how you feel. And I remember, but chutzpah, I was about 32 years old. I said, Rabbi Kane, I was a student here, you know, and I am a reconstructionist rabbi, and whatever I do is reconstruction. <laughs> I mean, it's true, and it's... Yeah. Not lacking in confidence. Yeah, because um, I, I, I just couldn't stand the um, agonizing about it. what's Reconstructionist, what isn't Reconstructionist. Yeah. You know, it just wasn't a very organic kind of conversation. Um, so I, yeah, so that, was, that was like um, about a decade before I started. And I, I'm a product of the conservative movement. And I felt like when I got here, because it's true that most... It, it took about 30 years until children of Reconstructionist congregations started to enroll at RRC. And I felt like um, so much of the energy, the, the Reconstructionist movement, Kaplan was on the faculty at the conservative seminary, of the Jewish Theological Seminary. And so, so much of it, I felt like it was, we were looking over our shoulder to the conservative movement. It was, I felt like from the outset that, no, this has to be about building up Reconstructionism, not just being in reaction to where we emerged from. So it was, it was still very present 10 years later. I'm sure it was even stronger. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so when I, when I returned, I, not, I returned not only to be a full-time faculty member at RSC, but I also took the editorship, was appointed editor of the Renew, you know, the Reconstructionist magazine, which had not been published for four or five years after uh, the former editor, Rabbi Ira Eisenstein, had, uh, had retired. And I, I was given a mandate, a very exciting mandate, uh, to um, really present all the exciting things that were happening, um, both intellectually, theologically, and in terms of what was going on in, in con congregations and um, in an attractive layout um, and to bring new voices in. And so I really, I, I think I was, a, I, I got the job in June. I was coming back to Philadelphia in August and starting an RSC in September. But from the moment, the moment in June that I got it, I, my mind never stopped. All oh, the things that we could, we could 
do. And I had a really great six-year run um, uh, editing the, the Reconstructions magazine at that time. I'll say something. I also was then asked to co-write Exploring Judaism, a Reconstructionist approach, as um, you mentioned. And I'll talk about both of those things concurrently, which was we were um, trying to figure out how this grand vision of Rabbi Kaplan about peoplehood and the organic Jewish community and um, um, all of these kind of concepts on the page could be implemented in concrete Tachlet, um, uh, congregations and, and for individuals in the 1980s. And, and um, there were a number of challenges. One was there was no Jewish people and there was no organic Jewish community. There were individual communities. Mm -hmm. And so together with David Teutsch, um, who was first the, my boss as the executive director of um, the Federation of Reconstructionist Congregations in Kavu Rope. Yeah, Congregational uh, Union. It's yeah. had many, many name changes. And yeah, but, and, and the magazine was the, a product of, of that organization, was to imagine what would make a community compelling um, or influential or something, how belonging to a community could affect my life um, if I don't believe in um, the Torah from heaven and revelation and halacha. I, I, if, I, if I think that I'm choosing to be Jewish, where is the obligation or where is the responsibility to, to others? And I want, to, I want to pause. I don't. I, I want you to remember that you were. There are other things you want to talk about, but I. We've never had this conversation in the context of the Reconstructionist, the, the, the journal about communicating outward, and I think it's it is it is such an essential element of, of a Reconstructionist approach that distinguishes it from the Reform Movement, which is a question a lot of people will ask. Where if the Reform Movement was established on individual autonomy. So the, what, the, what the individual has to say, and obviously there are reform synagogues, but I think part of Kaplan's genius was to say, yes, individual and yes, community, and that both are equally important and that we, the community has to make space for the individual and that the, in, the, in that making space, the community is going to be transformed. So I, 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 I love hearing about this wrestling about how to draw individuals into community life. I mean, it's, it's, it's something, it's, it's still a deep co commitment and preoccupation of ours to this day. Please say more. <laughs> right, so um, we, we were talking about what, what makes a community compelling and what, what, what would make me submit or be influenced by what other members of the community are doing. And I think I'll give two approaches, I think we had a lot more, um, but one was, if I am really um, in community with a bunch of people and they have certain dietary practices, I 
could be influenced by that. They'll explain to me why it's meaningful for them and maybe it'll be meaningful for me, maybe not. And there's no pressure, but, uh, but you know, what, or Shabbat observance or that kind of stuff. Um, and one of our mottos then, I think still now is every generation has the obligation to reconstruct. And so we ran symposia on Israel, we ran symposia on chosenness, where people are arguing both ways and or explain and explaining what Cha, what Kaplan had taught in more compelling ways than he had, you know, speaking the language of the of the eighties, and we you know we ran pieces on the synagogue as a support system network, like building community in that way. You know, if you it's not just attending synagogue, but if Parents of teenagers need to get together and parents in a sandwich generation need to get together and people who are um, uh, having chemotherapy or otherwise impaired need their community members to feed them and drive them and support them. And uh, I think Harriet Finer wrote the preeminent piece on this. She um, was a member of uh, the, Reconstructionist Congregation of the North Shore, I think maybe one of its founding members. And yeah, she was, she was. Was, and um, so just explaining how do you make community? Another was, it was an issue of um, sanctuary. Like how can a synagogue declare itself a sanctuary for undocumented aliens and protect them from the immigration service when not everybody in the congregation agrees to that, how do you split hair? How do you how do you form a community where not everybody agrees with any policy? And you know, so I think uh, Beth Israel Media under Rabbi Brian Walt had worked out. You know, there was a sanctuary chavura within the congregation that that did that. So not everybody had to be associated with it. So we we were really exploring what does it mean to be a community in a, at a time when you don't have to belong to a community. The, the, um, yeah, it's a choice. It's a choice. choice. It's a countercultural yeah. choice even. Yeah. Right. Listeners to this podcast, and they're aware probably that Evolve, the website expression, and also the, 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 these podcasts are the next iteration of that. I just, I'm wondering, how do you reflect? There's, there's this kind of expansiveness that you can have about this rich dialogue, this conversation across difference, respectful conversation across difference. How do you go from that? I'd love to hear you reflect on going from that kind of really expansive, multivocal demonstration of a reconstructionist approach to the synthesis of exploring Judaism, which even as you co-wrote it with Rebecca Alpert, really tries to boil it down to key principles. How, how do you, how, can you talk about that journey? That process? Yeah, I, I, I guess you're correct. You're correct in your um, characterization of exploring Judaism, but I don't think that I thought that was what we were doing. So, oh. um, yeah, I think that the the magazine and then evolve our demonstration of Reconstructionism and exploring Judaism is an explication of of Reconstructionist Judaism. Yeah, but. You know, I, I shuddered, but I insisted on, forget, I'm doing Kashrut again, on, on um, 
on a line in exploring Judaism that said, if, you, uh, if your great-great-grandmother um, used to uh, serve, if, going back a few generations in your family, um, you um, have pork chops or baked ham for Rosh Hashanah, that could be a choice you make, right? Um, that we all come from different backgrounds and have different associations. Now, that wasn't the preeminent point. That was like a, a little sentence at the end of a paragraph. And we were trying to, ex to explain what does it mean to live in Jewish time and seeing the world through Jewish colored lenses and how ritual observance and um, prayer practice and community participation all get you to live from Shabbat to Shabbat, from Passover to Shavuot, from Jacob to Joseph in the, in the, in the Torah reading cycle, that um, we could, even though we didn't live in Jewish civilization as a primary civilization, that, that we could construct a, uh, a life that was meaningfully and significantly colored by my Jewish eyes um, rather than my American eyes. And um, so that I could make decisions about how to relate to non-Jews even, or to other Jews, Jews who disagreed with me from a, an authentic Jewish vision and, and viewpoint. I think that's how I might characterize exploring Judaism. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think that, I don't think this is a point you make in exploring Judaism. And I know I'm pretty confident that you were my teacher of this. So I'm going to repeat something back to you that I think you taught me. And I hope that feels like kavod. Um, that, feels, that feels honoring that part of the work of that shift from the medieval period, even as there was reconstruction going on there, into the, the modern period, and this is why I remain endlessly interested in it, is that our ancestors, this religion explained everything for them and it was deeply authentic. It was the only thing they knew. It was very thick and it's what they lived in. And we, since over the last several hundred years, we live uh, with many, many, with like where, where it's, it's much more shattered. There are many more options and that Jewish identity has gotten thinner and thinner in certain ways because of all those options and, and, and for other reasons as well. And that the Reconstructionist project and that the work of those of us who choose to take it on is about, is exactly, it's about, it's about that choice, about rebuilding, reweaving, not just reconstructing, but rebuilding, reweaving, recentering a Jewish framework on our own terms, but in a way that um, artificially creates that authenticity that once was naturally created. Yeah, I perfectly, perfectly, I completely agree. What I would add is, um, I probably also said in, in that class <laughs> that that's what Jews have always been doing. <laughs> the myth of monolithic uh, Judaism that goes back to Sinai is, you know, that's one of the things we, we discover when we when we study Judaism uh, 
from a civilizational point of view. Um, whatever Jews do, they attribute they 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 attribute back to um, Sinai or back to the rabbis, unaware that the mourners' kaddish is only a thousand years old. That the bar mitzvah ceremony is less than five hundred years old. That chicken- that, that tune to a Olam is only fifty years old. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, um, and uh, we should. The, the project of reconstructing Judaism today is to keep that always in mind and not worry about how, whether not not be inhibited by uh, by looking over our shoulder and afraid that we're going to go too far. I remember being part of a series of panels uh, re- representing reconstructionism, the four movements in the 1980s in response to Rabbi Yitz Greenberg's article, Will There Be One Jewish People in the Year 2000? Because it came <laughs> as, as a result of the reform movement's acceptance of patrilineal descent, the fact that we had accepted patrilineal descent before that didn't 1967, yeah. <laughs> 1980, what, three or something, the reform movement did it. And, um, you know, I, I remember getting up in front of hundreds of people, one at Cage and at other conferences, and say, you know, I'm not worried. I'm not worried. If if patrilineal descent is a bad idea, then patrilineally descended Jews will disappear. And if it's a good idea, and in 30 or 40 years they're coming back and want to be part of the Jewish community, I have confidence in the Jewish community. Uh, that we will find a way to readmit them, or to admit them, or to acknowledge them. That's that's what's going to happen. Um, Boy, do I hope you feel vindicated. That's precisely what did happen. You know, there's a, there's a lot of right. Uh, it was not easy along the way, and that's that's that is the moment in which we find ourselves. Yeah. So. And the other thing is, I like to say is, we probably only know one percent, maybe ten percent of all the innovations that Jews have made over the centuries right. um, because they survived and then became right. traditional. And we don't know about all the bad ideas that didn't survive, right. so we shouldn't right. worry. Right. 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 Okay, Brian Schwartzman here. Can't let too much showtime go by without hearing my voice, so, so here I am. Just want to let you know, if you'd like to support these groundbreaking conversations on the podcast, on the website, Or if you'd like to honor Rabbi Jacob Staub and his career and accomplishments, well, go right ahead. I won't stop you. In fact, I'll encourage you. There's a donate link right in our show notes. Every gift matters and every gift uh, brings our show forward. So thanks for listening and thanks for your support. All right, now back to our regularly scheduled programming. So I think it's, I mean, it's challenging for people like you and me who have really devoted our not just our careers, but our lives to reconstructionism to distinguish between like the, you know, the ideology and, and the biography. But, and I think, you know, for both of us, I, I think I would say like the, the ideology has enlivened our lives, you know, that there's a reason why it's an organizing principle. I want to take us, I feel like we could talk for hours about reconstructionism. I want to take us back to more to your biography a little bit. And I just, I think this move us forward a little bit in time, because if that was the project of the 80s, um, when I was in rabbinical school, 
the, a lot of the work you were doing was around um, creating the, the new field of Jewish spiritual direction, um, a, a really big innovation uh, that emerged here at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College and has very significantly uh, impacted the, the, the wider Jewish community. I mean, the many, many, ha many have, this one, this one really leapt um, in, into the mainstream rel relatively quickly. So want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, when I became uh, Dean um, in 1990 or so, 1989, um, one of my objectives was to help remake the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College uh, into a place for spiritual formation and spiritual growth. Because until then it had more or less been primarily a graduate school. And what you did when you studied Bible or Talmud or anything else was you studied it as if you were at a, a graduate department. And there was no room in the classroom uh, for, for, for reflection on meaning and spiritual development. And so for almost 10 years with the uh, ongoing funding of the Nathan Cummings Foundation, we kept trying to figure out how to do that. I won't go into all of the various stages that of things that only work for a year or two, but then um, thanks to Rabbi Nancy Fuchs Kramer, who came into my office one day and said, you know, we kept going for, we keep looking for spirituality, but down the road at Chestnut Hill College, they have a department of spiritual direction. Maybe we should find out what that is. And so- It's a Catholic college and- you know. A Catholic college. And so we had a consultation um, with uh, three um, sisters who were in habits um, and Hal Tausig, who, was a, who had been teaching Christianity for us for a number of years, our required course in Christianity. And we discovered um, this practice that um, first of all did not entail people believing in any particular thing. He didn't say you have to believe in God, or, but, but that allowed for a diversity of spiritual paths. And, um, and we said, okay, we'll write a, another grand proposal of the Cummings Coming Foundation. I bet you're the one who wrote it at that point. Indeed, I was the college's <laughs> grant writer those years. Uh, yep. And, um, and, we spent a year, our initial thought was we were gonna to have to Judaize a Christian practice. That wasn't the problem. The problem was naturalizing a supernatural practice. And uh, like when they said, when the Holy Spirit is, you know, is in, you know, moves you, you know, what did that mean for us? You know? And um, so we, we developed uh, an approach that um, really worked really well, really quickly, and continues to work so that though the program is voluntary in any given year, 75% of RRC students enroll voluntarily because it is so helpful. In very, very brief, the practice is you sit with a director who doesn't judge you 
and um, who mostly is there to be 100% listening to you. And you are their center of attention, listening for what divine echoes, mysterious echoes um, are coming through what your narrative and helping you to notice them and to cultivate them. Um, and it works for people who are spiritual intellectually and like to study science or Talmud and, and devotionally and like to chant and sing and, and uh, activistically find spiritual meaning in, in uh, doing acts of loving kindness or uh, repairing the world. And actually, I love the fourth one most of all. I'm not going to leave it out. Me too, me too. <laughs> you can be spiritual iconoclastically, like, um, like Abraham was when he broke all of, he smashed all of his father's idols. Some people are spiritual by pointing out the idolatrous nature of everybody else's attempts to define the undefinable. Um, okay, so that's the, in brief, that's the practice and that's the program, but the impetus was how do we um, as reconstructionists, as naturalistic Jews, um, live a spiritual life between Shabbat and Shabbat, not in the synagogue, right? How do we notice um, and you get to decide what you want to call it. How do we notice God or the divine or the mystery um, or the process um, in our everyday life? And not only in sunrises and childbirth and you know highs, but also in the dark places. Mm -hmm. Where is God when I am in pain? You know, how do I get support when I'm going uh, when I'm mourning or I'm going through this relationship breakdown or what, or I've lost my job. Um, and I have found, and many people have found that, I've written a few articles about this, you can develop a personal relationship with a non-personal God. I don't have to believe that God is a person in order to relate to God personally, because I'm a person. And you do that by building a relationship. You know, just like you have to build a relationship with any human being, you build a relationship with the divine. And for me, that initially meant um, picturing God in the form of my mother holding me and comforting me. So you know, get, feeling the comfort of the universe and being free to use um, whatever images uh, work for you in terms of invoking that which you know is beyond description which is, after all, what happens in the Siddur and everywhere else in Jewish life. You don't really think God is king. You don't really, God, God is a doctor. You know, it's, it's, we, we can go through our days finding the divine in um, when we're shopping in the supermarket, if we're doing that, um, when we're um, in traffic, um, when we're sitting at a meeting, um, you know, what is the invitation in this? What is the opportunity in this? Um, what am I being called to do now? Being called to do sounds supernatural, like who's doing the calling? Um, in fact, when the last exchange I had with Rabbi Eisenstein before, um, before he died, I had written an article, God is Comforter, 
And he said, he wrote to me and said, Jacob, it's brilliant as always, but how can you have a comforter if no one's doing the comforting, right? And I tried to explain it to him, not expecting him to accept my explanation, but you can find God as a source of comfort, the source of inspiration, not only positive things as, as the source of, of judgment and self-recrimination. God is infinite. And, mm. and how, how when God overflows to me, I am open to whatever aspects I have developed a relationship with. Um, and it really can work. You know, so I, I should have started by defining spirituality. If spirituality is an exercise in reaching upward or inward, deeply inward, to find um, uh, the source that we are connected with, or if spirituality is the way that we um, relate to the cosmos so that all things aware of, that all things are interconnected, uh, then spiritual direction is that which helps you to make those connections and live with that kind of consciousness. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, I know that there are a lot of people who feel like they're allergic to the term spirituality. And I remember all the debates. I remember when we were working hard to, to, to um, articulate that, that definition that you just offered. I think the thing that feels most essential to me about not giving up on spirituality and making certain that it infuses religion, which is often more about either institution or doctrine or practices, like is the, is the humility that it demands like that, that, that we are, you know, we are more than just our atomized individuals with our brains that are at once so big and, and also so limited. And so it just, it pushes toward that interconnection. It pushes toward a humility that is, um, I think both sustaining and at times also um, correcting, you know, um, self, self or, or other correcting. One of the uh, key moments in my journey with my spiritual director was I came in and I was a real mess. Um, without going into detail, I just didn't know what to do, right? And I was in a lot of pain and uh, she said, ask for help. Yeah. And I said, I can't. And she said, why? I said, because I don't believe in a God who helps. She said, well, ask anyway. I said, no, I can't. Eventually, it just took a while, but eventually mm. I was able to say, I need help. That was so hard for me to say, mm. I need help. And mm. everything transformed emotionally yeah. and emotionally. Yeah. Um, I'm not in this alone. Yeah. I had the same exact experience. Also, I think, you know, really shaped by uh, spiritual direction where when I am, I have a physiological experience of like um, when I'm, when I'm totally stressed out and when things are feeling overwhelming, I will feel like very trapped and very enclosed. And I remember uh, you, we, you introduced this spiritual direction program my last year of rabbinical school. And I was one of the first year participants and I was getting ready to graduate and I was trying to plan my graduation party and it wasn't unfolding very well. And I remember just like that feeling of closeness coming in. And one of my favorite verses is um, from the Hallel, from one of the Psalms that's in the Hallel of 
Minha Meitzar Karatiya from a narrow place I called out to you, Anani Vamerchavia, you answered me from a wide open place. And I remember like having talked to my spiritual director and just like, I think like I was trying to rent tables for the party and like the, it was June, the rent, the, I was too late and like sitting there like, what am I going to do? And I remember just saying like, I help. I mean, it's very much the same. And I just remember all of a sudden I was in that wide open space, like that, all that narrowness, uh, at least for the moment lifted and I could breathe better. I could draw my shoulders back. I had access to um, more options and, uh, and, and greater equanimity. And it was really, it was just about like, it was about acknowledging, like acknowledging my limitations. And then somehow, somehow that it's not like I was superhuman or anything, but just that I was, um, I get the way you just said it. I was no longer alone. Yeah. And so important to me anyway, that, um, that what you just described is, um, you know, is in naturalistic terms, a divine intervention, is uh, an angel helping you, is, uh, you know, that's what they, I believe that's what they meant. And so we can readopt the words, though not believing exactly the metaphysical reality that they are, they, they were conveying. And it really works. Right. works and, you know so it's not like oh i have to go back and be a traditional orthodox jew in order to have access uh to uh, to this kind of spiritual resource i have an eye on time because i think we're actually we're we're we're, 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 we're running along so i want to kind of just take us we, we think we just hit around 2000 <laughs> but i want to i think i want to wind us down um is there, I, I have a, a closing question, but is, before I ask it, is there anything that you want to share before I, I kind of do a wrap-up question? Is the wrap-up question about Evolve? Well, the wrap-up question, the, the wrap-up question I was thinking about asking was about you as an editor and as a writer. Um, and when you started your journey into Reconstructionism, you made reference to the Bread Loaf Writers Conference. And I was thinking about how writing is a through line throughout all of this. Um, your own writing and helping other people find their own voice. And that happened, that's happened like through not just exploring Judaism, but other influential articles that you've written, um, your, your essay explaining uh, patrilineal descent in the early 1980s was really essential in the wider world and certainly within the Reconstructionist movement. Your monograph on Shabbat in A Guide to Jewish Practice is such a gorgeous piece of writing that stands alone powerfully as well as you know, amplifying and enriching that, 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 that three volume collection. And you are, even as you're continuing to write in your own voice, helping others find their voices in a more powerful and more poetic way through your work editing Evolve. And so I wanted to just ask you to kind of, in, in, in a summative way, to reflect on, um, I guess, all of that or some of that. I remember in my senior year of rabbinical school, and I was trying to decide what I wanted to do after rabbinical school. I decided that when I was 70, which I happen to be now, you know, I'd be very old. Looking back, I, I would rather um, count the number of books and articles I had written rather than the number of weddings and the name mitzvah that I had officiated at. 
And so I took that turn. I went into academia and did not love it. And coming back to RSC allowed me to put both of those together in many ways. But in the one way, you know, I was all of a sudden I was the editor of a monthly magazine. Um, and, you know, all the stuff I learned, I was a fiction writer in, as an undergraduate. I, I, all the stuff I learned from uh, John Barth, my fiction writing teacher, about how to write clearly and how to, you know, came to good use. I, you know, I just, I knew how to write. Um, and um, I think I also learned a lot from one of my assistants at the editor, now Rabbi David Stein, who was just merciless with his red pen. And um, he still makes his living as an editor and a copy of That's good. And, um, but I, and, you know, I've, I've written poetry all along. I, I, uh, I really um, love to write. Um, back before I learned how to speak, and I should mention that I almost didn't go to rabbinical school because I'd never spoken in public and I couldn't imagine ever speaking in public. Huh? For, <laughs> I did not know that. Time, I wrote everything out, including scratch your head, you know, huh? uh, giggle. You know, I scripted because I was so petrified, right? Wow. So, um, but, but when I wrote, my ideas got formed. Right. I, I couldn't think clearly without writing them. And then when I wrote them, new things came up. So I just think it has been a wonderful practice for me. I continue to write. I'm in a writer's group. I continue to write short stories and get critiqued by my group. I, um, and, you know, two nights ago, I spent some time with someone who had written an absolutely brilliant piece on Judaism and the environment that was just impenetrable. Mm, mm. Someone who didn't, doesn't know a lot about Jewish sources and stuff. And it's a thrill to help such a writer rewrite in a way that people will be able to read and take an important message uh, from that that they would just not do without the editing process. So I, I um, and I fell. I am so happy to solicit a graduating senior or someone who's out just a couple of years and encourage them to write their first piece and helping them along with that and then knowing that they can do it and so that they'll continue to write. Um, I, um, you know, sometimes I wonder whether this is going to be a, uh, an anachronistic skill, like, you know, but I'm not worried yet. People still do read. I mean... <laughs> Um, yeah, I, yeah. I think it's about how how the how the writing is delivered more yeah. than 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 the act of writing. So um, um, it's which uh, is why which is why we no longer publish the Reconstructionist, and why we have yeah. evolved as a a platform in multimedia and multivocal. Right. So uh, and it's uh, it's such as a foot. It's such a an honor to, um, now here I am, I've retired from teaching at RRC, but I don't have, to, I'm not retired from editing or from writing. And um, I hope to continue to do that uh, forever, as long as I can, because it is 
know, people say, what are you going to do in your retirement? Or my husband, Michael, says, I thought you were retired. What are you doing up there? <laughs> the answer is, I'm writing yeah. or editing because uh, it gives me such satisfaction. Yeah. Wow. It's a, it's a, I think it's a beautiful place to end because I think you, even as you are still an active contributor, this is a moment of reflection. This is a, a looking at legacy and your role as teacher and as guide and as expositor and as interlocutor and as creator and as, uh, as, as a springboard, you know, you, you, you have and continue to reconstruct Judaism and you have and continue to train others and to guide others in their work of reconstructing Judaism. Um, it's been, thank you. The, this hour has been a delight and, you know, these 30 years have been, uh, you know, such a blessing to me for me and, too. and to so many other people. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So to be continued concretely, this conversation is going to be continued next month on the Evolve Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations podcast when you will be the guest, not the host, uh, discussing your essay, Beyond Anti-Semitism. And we really look forward to that. Oh, I, 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 it'll be a great honor to return in that role. This, this has been wonderful, and I look forward to that as well. Thanks so much for listening to this special episode focusing on the career of our executive producer, Rabbi Jacob Staub. And thank you to Rabbi Deborah Waxman for guest hosting this show and leading such an incisive interview. So what'd you think of today's episode? We want to hear from you. Anything is on the table, except maybe that we should dump the host. Definitely don't write that. Evolve is about curating meaningful conversations, and that includes you. Send me your questions, comments, feedback. You can reach me at my real email address, bschwartzman, S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z-M-A-N at reconstructingjudaism.org. We'll be back next month with an all new, kind of a flip side episode. So if you enjoyed this one, um, next month, Rabbi J Jacob Staub and I will, be, will actually turn the tables and be interviewing Rabbi Deborah Waxman about her recent essay, analyzing kind of the big picture of anti-Semitism and, and where we're at today. So if you enjoyed this one, you should be into next month as well. Evolve, Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations, is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Walks. Our theme song, Ilufinu, is by Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and I and the whole team will see you next time. <laughs>